0: And we are running out of time.
1: We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe.
2: Change is coming, whether you like it or not.
1: Extinction!
2: rebellion! Welcome to the Extinction Rebellion Podcast. I'm Marine Vandergeer, and I'm Jessica Townsend. And this episode is called Looking Forward. We'll be going outside of Extinction Rebellion this time to look at where we are heading in terms of climate change and biodiversity loss.
0: As you know, Extinction Rebellion has three demands of the government – And we don't usually advocate any particular policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, We believe that it's up to the British public to decide those issues. But there are lots of thinkers with great ideas of how Britain and the planet in general can proceed. And we think it's a good idea to explore these as possibilities for after the rebellion.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think even... If Extinction Rebellion doesn't say these, this is what we think needs to happen, doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who have very firm ideas on what they think should, should be done. I'm really thrilled that we've managed to get the three
0: speakers that we have for this podcast. Cristiana Figueres is a world figure on climate policy. George Monbiot, a veteran writer and thinker on the environment and Jem Bendel, whose book on deep adaptation caused
2: such a stir last year. So let's now begin with Christiana Figueres, who is the former executive secretary to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And she is credited with securing the Paris Agreement on Climate back in 2015. Also, by the way, this interview is conducted by our
3: producer, Dave Anderson. Let's have a listen. I'm Christiana Figueres. I continue to be the faithful servant of my one and only ultimate boss, the global atmosphere. That's and my title. That's your, <laughs> that's
1: your official title. It's my official title. <laughs> Christiana, as someone who is so integral to the Paris Agreement of 2015, and obviously you would have poured so much of yourself into that. How do you feel now looking back at it?
3: I continue to recognize that the Paris Agreement was absolutely critical to all global efforts on climate change because prior to that, the milestones of what we have to do globally had not been agreed. And that's really important because my boss, the atmosphere, she does not see passports she doesn't really mind whether one ton of CO2 is coming from the UK, from China, from Costa Rica, or from Tuvalu. That is irrelevant to the atmosphere. What she wants to see is emissions being reduced. And so to have a timeline for reductions was absolutely fundamental. Having said that, What I really want to underline is that the Paris Agreement was necessary, but not sufficient. Because unless it is implemented, and unless it is implemented in a timely fashion, it does no one any good.
1: And how many of the signatories of the agreement are currently on course to meet their commitments?
3: You know, I think it catches most people by surprise that we already have 40-some, 42, 43 countries in the world that have already um flattened out or in fact begun their decrease of their emissions that is not something that is popularly known because what we look for constantly is the global numbers and we know that between 2016 and 2018 we actually managed to halt the increase of global greenhouse gases So we had a flat global emission rate for three years. And then last year, globally, we went up 1.7%.
1: I want to mention that the UK is actually not on course to meet its carbon budget for 2023 to 37, or therefore its 2050 commitment as things are going at the moment. When countries start to veer off the, the planned course, what recourse is there to encourage them back onto that course?
3: There was no legal recourse. It was not considered to be um, actually any advantage to do that. And let me tell you why. Because when the Kyoto Protocol went into force, the, um, the emission reductions that each country assumed were made legally binding, different to the Paris Agreement. And um, that didn't mean anything anyway. Canada, under very different administration than where it is now, was not in compliance with its emission reductions and 24 hours before they would have gone into no compliance and had to pay a fine, they just sent a letter saying they're withdrawing from the Kyoto Protocol. So legally binding, uh, you know, emission reductions are absolutely no, there's no point to them because any country can withdraw. What we thought would actually be a much more powerful, Uh, motor of force is actually the incentives that are defined by the countries themselves. And that is why each of the nationally determined contributions that countries make are based on a national analysis of what their interests in promoting and advancing on their sustainable development are, so that countries do prefer more energy independence, countries do prefer better livable cities They do prefer uh, further um, energy efficiency because it's better for their economies. You
1: clearly have a lot of um, faith that the structures are in place to meet that goal. You have your own podcast called Outrage, I Can Understand the Outrage, and Optimism. The optimism seems less rational to me, looking at the same evidence. Looking at the whole thing in the round, do you feel that we're actually moving in the right direction fast enough to achieve what has to be done? Or do you think we need to rethink our approach in some way?
3: So, correct. Our, our, our podcast is called Outrage and Optimism because we think that both of those sentiments are key to progress and that we have to bring them together. Outrage, I think, is you know fantastically demonstrated by Extinction Rebellion, by the young people on the streets every Friday in particular, we certainly support that um, and think that civil disobedience is a very important part of moving public opinion. And it is only through moving public opinion that you can accelerate public policy. So that is the outrage part. The optimism part comes from, I think, a deeper sense of responsibility. The mindset has to be, that we are going to make this possible. I frankly have no tolerance for mindsets that say this is impossible. This is too difficult. It's too expensive. It's too late. We're not going to try anyway. I have no tolerance for that because frankly, we don't have the option to be negative. We don't have the option to be pessimistic about this because the consequences are way too grave. I think it is our responsibility to have a constructive, approach that says we don't know exactly how we're going to get there but by golly we're going to make it possible and then secondly to examine everything that is at our disposal and then some more to actually make it possible
1: and given all that and as we're not currently on course to get this all done what is what's the next step if we if we carry on this way we're drifting many countries are
3: not we carry on with this way we're drifting that is also not a fair appreciation, okay? It's not a fair appreciation because you are not, you're not considering what has been done until now. I guarantee you that there are thousands, if not millions of people who have devoted years to actually making possible the fact that today renewable energy is so much cheaper than coal. I guarantee you that there are thousands, if not millions of people who have given their every waking hour to make possible the fact that we have now wind energy and especially offshore wind that is totally competitive. So, And I can give you many more examples. The fact that we have now financial institutions that have divested from coal and from oil and gas up to $8.5 trillion divested and moved over. Where I do agree with you is on pace and scale. The direction has been set, and we're decarbonizing the economies of most countries around the world. Are we doing it fast enough? No, we are not. That I completely agree with you on.
1: So you see the path towards the future we need to create by 2050. You see that path as running through the traditional structures of international politics and national politics and grassroots movements like Extinction Rebellion? And
3: finance, and technology. And the answer is several things. First, we have to be very, very clear about the fact that it is in every country's self-interest to move their electric grid out of coal, because coal is now an asset that has no more value, and move it over to renewables. We also have to invest very quickly into storage and into batteries so that we will be able to have 100%, 24-7, renewable energies on every grid. So we still have to invest a lot into batteries. We still have to convince countries that it is in their interest to move over to their national domestic sources so that they can have energy independence and, frankly, political independence. We also have to mobilize public opinion much more Yes, we have 1.5 million students on the streets on March 15th. We should be having 10 million. And it's public opinion that then gets reflected in elections, and those elections get reflected in people that are voted into power and that make the decisions. So it's all interlinked. So, Marine, 10 million on the street. Do you
0: think we can manage that for the next rebellion?
2: I think we have to. I think that (laughs) sounds amazing.
0: (laughs) Why not? (laughs) She's given us the challenge. Yeah,
2: although I must say then for the next camp, we need more compost toilets (laughs) because we only had one at Marvel Arch. And yeah, we we definitely need to plan for more.
0: (laughs) 10 million, no problem. Yeah, and it's been really interesting to hear somebody who's been working inside global climate policy for decades. Yeah, Um,
2: I think it's really important to, to note that Christiana clearly believes that any sort of change in terms of climate, biodiversity, sustainability will happen through the current political and economic systems that we see around the world. But then we know from the people that we've spoken to that a lot of people believe that actually, first of all, we need political system change before we can even get to any of that.
0: Yes, such as George Monbiot, who is next up. George Monbiot is a thinker and a writer on climate and biodiversity issues and also on capitalism and bigger systemic Issues. Uh, I was lucky enough to catch up with him uh, during the last rebellion in April. This was recorded at Marble Arch which was one of the sites which we were still holding. Marble Arch was of course rather fabulous because we also had Greta Thunberg talking there and uh, many...
2: Caroline Lucas
0: and uh, yeah loads of incredible speakers. Uh, George had been ill during the last rebellion, but he came from Oxford against doctors' orders to yeah. be part of it. So, <laughs> <Blessing>. uh, <laughs> so let's hear that.
4: Well, the great thing, one of the many great things about Extinction Rebellion, is that you are highly ambitious. Yeah, you know, you're not asking for small change. You're you're not asking for incremental, marginal, political shifts. You're asking for massive political shifts, which is what the science demands. You know what. Extinction Rebellion, I think, has highlighted very effectively is that if there's a contest between political realism and scientific realism, the scientific realism has to win. Uh, Political realism is negotiable. What seems completely unrealistic one year suddenly becomes realistic the next year. Yes. Look at Brexit, for example. Mm. Um, But scientific realism is not negotiable. You can't argue with physics. And and it's wonderful to see that both with Extinction Rebellion and the youth strike for climate that has been a very strong theme that that we have to listen to what the science is saying, tell the truth about it and follow where it leads um, and build our politics around it. Now that means a, a huge challenge for the political system because it's a reorientation of the whole ethical compass. Everything that mainstream politics, mainstream economics conceives as good suddenly looks highly questionable. That um, economic growth, for example, is the primary aim of of, um, most politics and, and most economics. And yet we now know it is destroying our life support systems. And the challenge is enormous. I mean, it's very hard to see how this isn't... A straightforward challenge to capitalism itself because capitalism is premised on economic growth I and mean, economic growth is the aggregate of the harvesting of surplus value the pursuit of profit um, and so what we're really calling for is an end to capitalism
0: or and in its present form at and least. I don't think there is a form
4: of it which I think that's it what well,
0: we've got is
4: it's, it's, it's very hard to see how you can have a an environmentally benign capitalism. I mean we know you can't have green growth. That's that's very clear because there's been no absolute decoupling of material resources anywhere on earth. It's never happened uh, while while growth is 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 continuing. Sure. And even relative decoupling is extremely weak. Uh, basically, if you grow, you consume more resources. We can't afford to do that. We're already beyond the point at which Um, 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 the world's systems can sustain our current level of consumption.
0: So do you think that capitalism really can address its own faults or do you think the societal breakdown that many people are dreading is down the line for us, is actually a stage that might be necessary in order to restructure?
4: We are faced with a very clear choice. Do we defend capitalism against life or do we defend life against capitalism? And given that the economy is a subset of of, um, ecology, that we can't survive without our life support systems, we have to put life first. And we have to adjust our political and economic systems to that imperative. There's no way that capitalism fits with that. And and so we need urgently to design new systems. There's nothing from the past that can guide us. State communism doesn't work environmentally. Uh, feudalism isn't something anyone should want, so we have to design new systems. Now luckily there's been a lot of fantastic thinking along these lines. Um, Jeremy Lent's proposals for an ecological civilization in his wonderful book The Patterning Instinct. Kate Rayworth's wonderful work on donut economics, a great series of of, um, of books of, of new thinking, on ways in which we could create an environmental economy which is uh, created on entirely different basis to our capitalist economy. We can't reform capitalism, we have to replace it. Now, I don't believe there's any one big idea which is gonna do it by itself. I think we need to draw from the wisdom of many different people in many different disciplines and pull together a new political economy Based on the principle that every generation everywhere has an equal right to enjoy natural wealth. And what that says immediately is that we can't deplete resources which are going to be needed by other people. We can't destroy ecosystems which are going to sustain other people's lives. We can't use any renewable resource beyond its replenishment rate. We can't use up any essential non-renewable resource Uh, the economy has to be a circular economy as 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 much as humanly possible it has to be a regenerative economy Um, and we we have to completely reset our expectations of what a good life is
0: and do you think that that will look something like the 70s, where people grew a lot of vegetables and went on holiday in England? Or do you think that it will be something that we haven't yet seen?
4: I I think it will be and has to be something we haven't yet seen. We, We can't go back to any prior economic system because none of them were built on an environmental basis. So certainly not within any conception of the modern economy. And in the 70s, we had the end of the... Keynesian hegemony, where we had a social democracy which it was commendable in many ways. Full employment, um, a robust welfare state, strongly funded public services. These were all good things, but at the heart of Keynesian economics is the notion of sustaining a constant rate of economic growth. Not too high, not too low, we only want 2 or 3%. 3% economic mm. growth, that's a doubling every 24 years. Yes. Now, we've already broached crucial planetary boundaries. We've mm. already exceeded the the limits, the environmental limits that we can impose on the on the world's living systems. We want to double that.
0: I mm. hear that we're using 1.7 planets at the moment. Is that your understanding?
4: Well, yes, uh, uh, something like that, whereas uh, in... in in the UK, of course, a lot more. By yes. uh, you know, if ev- everyone were living like the UK, people in the UK would be a lot more. Yes. So, for instance, our land footprint is, I think, two and a half times the size of of the actual land that we've got available. And so, the only way that we're feeding ourselves is basically by cannibalizing other people's land elsewhere, yes. uh, and either depriving other people of a good diet or smashing environmental resources elsewhere um, and using them at an unsustainable rate and that means the depletion of soil, the depletion of aquifers, these resources without which we can't survive.
0: Um, It's not just economics though that needs reform is it? It seems like our representative democracy hasn't served us, it hasn't looked after us, it hasn't looked after the future generations that you were talking about. Uh, XR is calling for citizen's assembly, but do you see uh, other forms of... In in fact, it's quite surprising, really, that we've used this kind of (coughs) four-year, four-or-five-year first-past-the-post system. It seems incredibly uncreative to have stuck to that for so long. Well, it's not just
4: uncreative. It's also profoundly undemocratic because the the basic presumption um, of the system is presumed consent. So um, so, uh, the Prime Minister can stand up and say right, I've got this policy which I'm going to try to push through the House of Commons. Now, it could be that no one in the whole country supports that policy, but she or he still has that right to push it through the House of Commons. And if you challenge them, they'll say, well, you voted for me at the last election four years ago, Mm. therefore i got a mandate Mm. to do this. And you say, and you respond, well, number one, I didn't vote for you. Number two maybe 30 percent of the country voted for you but they certainly didn't vote on this because this wasn't even in the manifesto and even if it was in the manifesto it was at the bottom of page 71 and no one noticed it so you're presuming consent for this now we don't accept presumed consent when it comes to sex why should we accept it when it comes to politics it's outrageous Hmm. that they should get away with that now I'm not saying we need to get rid of representative democracy. I'm saying we need to temper representative democracy with participatory democracy. And with digital tools, we have so much more opportunity to do this than ever before. And I'm not just talking citizens' assemblies, which I think are a crucial part of it, but a whole load of deliberative processes, which, some of which are being done around the world today. So a classic example is Better Reykjavik, in Iceland, following the total disaster of the financial crisis there, where mm-hmm. you know it just yes. wiped Iceland out more or less, the politicians in Reykjavik, who were very progressive, very forward-looking, decided: well, you know, we just can't trust the elite to run the country anymore. Um, the only way in which we can prevent that sort of corruption from taking place is to hand the keys over to the people. So they designed this really amazing program, which whereby anyone living in Reykjavik can um, put forward a proposal for what they want to see happening in the city, anything at all. And then every month, the people of Reykjavik vote on those proposals. And the the top-ranking ones, um, the ones which get the most votes, then go forward to the council, which either has to accept them or to produce a really good reason for rejecting them. And it Mm -hmm. turns out that really good reason is is absolutely crucial to public trust Mm. in in the programme. Because Mm -hmm. it's when people get rejected out of hand, when when, when you're basically told to sod off, we're not listening, that people lose faith in politics. But in this case, they have to show that they've considered it very carefully, gone through it, decided whether it really is going to be beneficial or whether there might be harmful Mm. aspects, and then come back with a highly reasoned and considered answer. Mm. Either we're accepting it, for mm. the following reasons, or we're rejecting it for the following reasons, because we think it could cause harm in this way, or or because someone else has produced a better idea, whatever it might be. And and as a result of this, two-thirds of the people of Reykjavik have been active participants right, in wow. this, and they have transformed the city. I haven't been there, but I'm told it is just visibly different from what it was before. It's, been, it's just a really wonderful place to live, because it's run by its own people.
0: It's quite interesting, I live in Walthamstow and Mm. um, our MP Stella Creasy, uh, Mm. who isn't an XR person, Mm. I mean no politician is at the Mm. moment, because uh, we we haven't formed those alliances, who knows what will happen in the future, Uh, but she is suggesting that perhaps we have a borough citizens yeah, assembly yeah. and it seems she's to me she's pretty
4: good and she, she's she, she's across these issues
0: isn't yeah. she yeah and uh, it seems to me that that it, that xr itself as well actually we've been fly posting in the borough i now recognize people as i walk around the street who are extinction rebellion yeah, yeah. and we are bursting with ideas about what to do about biodiversity in the borough itself so in that way uh, extinction rebellion is kind of forming a community Uh, in the borough that I just didn't see before and I know in your work because I I read your columns that you've been looking for a kind of grassroots kind of interconnection and I must admit when I first read it I thought you were really talking pie in the sky I was like I know two of my neighbours I don't know they don't meet my eye on the street but uh, actually Extinction Rebellion is kind of doing something a little bit magical that way.
4: Well you know I'm really pleased to hear this because that's that's exactly where I want to see the change, with that sort of integration between the the political and the community life, to create a politics of belonging. Yes. And and, and I've heard good things about Walthamstow. Um, I've been looking at what's happening in Barking and Dagenham, which is really exciting. Okay. Where they're trying to create a a genuine participatory city. Um, There's a group called Participatory City, working with Barking and Dagenham Council and they are trying to create this these thick networks of engagement, of community projects, activities, getting people cooking together, eating together, doing childcare together, making stuff together. And it's working amazingly well. Now, yeah, Barking and Dagenham is a place with huge problems. It used to be the stronghold of the BNP. There's been a lot of unemployment, a lot of yeah. poverty. It's the most deprived borough in London. It's You'd have thought it was... Uh, not a very good place to start this but Mm. on the contrary Mm -hmm. they've already begun transforming that borough by building community and and, and community is the seedbed for a lot of political change. No,
0: absolutely. And it means that people don't just sit back and, and say things like, why isn't the council doing yeah, this? Yeah. It means that, say, with the biodiversity projects, you can actually get out there, roll up your sleeves, yeah. plant plant some sort of wildflowers in your local park, get yeah. to meet your neighbours, and there's a there's a kind of process that, yeah. that goes yeah. on that way. No, yes. no that's absolutely right. Extinction Rebellion podcast. I love that idea that uh, the climate crisis might lead to greater neighbourhoods and uh, greater communities. I think that would be a wonderful um, sideline.
2: Yeah, something wonderful good. Wonderful compensation. To, yeah, good, yeah, something good to come out of this crisis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I also find it so powerful when that he says, you know, scientific reality needs to be listened to and and prioritised over whatever political reality we think there is. You know, scientific reality is non-negotiable. It
0: is, in fact, reality. Yeah, it is. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that is the reality. Um, And views like these aren't really readily accepted um, at the moment. And uh, actually, after your interview with George, he then took to the stage at at Marble Arch and um, he was abruptly... Uh, disrupted by the police and we actually have a bit of a recording of that so um, let's go into that yes (laughs) what it took was action on a
4: massive scale conceived and planned
0: with the greatest
4: ambition both in terms oh whoops here we
0: go we need people around the trucks. Um, George George speech has been interrupted okay. by the we presence a of a now. lot of police officers. Please
4: disregard the police. Sit down. Disregard the police. Let's just carry on as if they are extra security to keep us safe.
2: So next, we'll be hearing from Professor Jem Bendel, who is a professor of sustainability and the founder of the Institute for Leadership and Sustainability at the University of Cumbria. He wrote the paper Deep Adaptation, which caused a stir in the world of sustainability, uh, but also with the general public, really. So we'll be hearing a little bit more about that. And Jessica went and interviewed him during the rebellion back in April. In fact
0: it was Rebellion Day, so a very special day. We included a snippet of this in the podlet, uh, but Jem Bendor is so interesting that we thought we would include the full deluxe version for yeah. this podcast.
5: <laughs> I, t- I took a year off from my unpaid leave from my job as a Professor of Sustainability Leadership. and. In that time, I spent a couple of months looking at all the latest climate science um, from the last just the last uh, four years, and when there was uncertainty or a lack of consensus, I then went to the research institutes or I went and looked at the measurements, real-time measurements of say methane, and, and I concluded that um, that there are now signs that uh, climate change is speeding up in a way which suggests that it's not directly related to our current human carbon emissions, it's these self-reinforcing feedback loops which are now further heating the planet. So I think that we have, we have seen the start of runaway climate change. The big thing this means is that we've got a human catastrophe on our hands. It's coming. And um, so that was my conclusion in 2018, and I thought, wow, so the work I'm doing in business schools uh, and with businesses, uh, which is based on the idea of reforming the current system fairly slowly, uh, is really redundant. It's, it's, it's a form of denial. It's wasting my time, I mean. But then I decided um, I wanted to share it with others in my profession, so I wrote the Deep Adaptation paper and, and provided a framework for, for how we could talk about uh, what do we do now if we think that there's a societal collapse on the horizon.
0: This must have been quite inconvenient for a Professor of Sustainability.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, sure. I think you put your finger on it. In my paper, I spent quite a bit of time talking about the various reasons why the environmental movement and the environmental profession are kind of like arch deniers of impending collapse, because our whole identity, our profession, um, our organisation's existence, or our department's existence... Uh, is all premised on the idea that uh, we have the truth, that sustainability is really important, that we must do more, everyone needs to listen to us, and then things will be fine. Um, so, so of course, it's 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 very difficult for for, for people in my role, in my sector, to uh, think again. If you take this on board, then you you don't really want to do your job anymore. You, you don't know. You don't believe in your career anymore. What are you going to do? I know, I've noticed quite recently some people in the environmental movement quite obviously getting upset with the view of pe- people like me who say that they think it's too late to prevent a societal collapse in our lifetimes. They think that, that that's taking away hope and therefore disabling motivation, disempowering people. But I don't think that at all. I think going through despair always leads somewhere else and if we help each other get that, going through that despair can lead us into a new uh, a, a new way of being in the world which is putting love and truth first uh, in, with a, a boldness, and I've seen that with, with the impact of my paper on some of the people who are leading the rebellion.
0: One of the liberating things about now is that although it is so late, it does feel as if it is a time when, in which we can act.
5: I think there is a political moment now and that's why I've joined in with the Rebellion but in the citizens' assemblies and in, uh, in that concept uh, there is this sense that uh, we need to come together to prepare for a very rough time ahead. So yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm with the idea of the Rebellion creating a political moment for bold action on cutting carbon or drawing it down and, that, and there are a whole range of things. We've known about what we could be doing. Um, a long time but it means an interventionist government uh but it not and it and the thing is it doesn't just mean things like oh okay we're going to have to have a carbon tax or we're going to have to ban the motor car or we're going to have to um uh, tax meat on you know and all all the various things that could have quite a quick impact on carbon it it also means uh redesigning the whole economic system we've got a system which relies on economic growth, because otherwise the banks won't issue new loans, which is the source of our money supply. I, I can't answer that. I don't think anyone can. And also, we've got 200 and something countries in the world. This is a global problem it will affect all countries. So I think it will play out differently in different places. I spent years trying to promote the localization of economy through um, the of local currencies and I work with a charity called Community Forge and we provide free open source software for over 200 community currencies around the world which don't need to be bought with cash basically you join a system a platform and then you start earning points when you're being useful to your neighbors whether that's giving them vegetables or walking their dog or whatever but what we need to do is scale those up mash them together so they become a viable payment system if our mainstream banking system goes down because what I think could happen is that when um, the commodities markets get spooked, if we have more problems with agricultural production, like we had in 2018, but we have like that happening, happening across the key bread baskets that produce so much of the world's grains, so if it happens in Russia and America at the same time, we could see, and with the way the free market works in grains, we could see a ridiculous sp- uh, spike in food prices in a way that would ripple through the system and all the algorithms going silly and suddenly uh, some kind of credit crunch and financial crisis.
0: In your paper you talk about three principles, resilience, relinquishment and restoration. Would you mind just telling me what those are about?
5: I was inviting people to have conversations about what does it mean if we think societal collapse is on the horizon. And they thought if you think collapse is coming, then there's no point in doing anything. And so I thought it would help if I provided a framework for people to have those conversations. So the first question, which I labeled resilience, is, well, what is it that we most value that we want to keep through whatever's coming? For some people, that's very much about principles around love and kindness and compassion. Other people, um, initially, they think, well, uh, my life and my children and bugger everyone else. But then when they really look into that, they then begin to doubt that as well. They also realize, but I'm, I'm inviting that kind of conversation What is it you really most want to keep through this? Second thing was, I've I've labeled relinquishment. So it follows on naturally from that other question, which is, what is it that we need to let go of? Otherwise, we'll make matters worse. So it's really been fascinating to see how people have been using that question. There are community dialogues in Peterborough and other places where they're actually looking into, what is it that we take for granted? we 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 just just got to let it go. And and the sooner we do, um, the better, because Otherwise, it will be more traumatic when the changes come later. Third question, uh, restoration. It's very simple, which is that we got here before modern industrial consumer society. Humans managed to live, enjoy life, make love, produce babies, have a, a, you know. (laughs) So what is it that we've lost that we could bring back? I deliberately didn't call it regeneration because um, I didn't want to make this explicitly about how do we just work with ecosystems and rewilding and so on, but that's part of it. But, but, it's, but it's also as simple as, well, we used to get together a lot more and play games rather yeah. than just sit on in our own centrally heated front, front rooms watching telly. So it, uh, mm. it's a much more everyday question. Mm. But I've added a fourth one since that came out, a fourth R about reconciliation, which is, Although there's so much that we could now be talking about doing and doing based on an analysis that it's too late to stop disruptive climate change. If we don't fully grieve, um, by which I mean if we don't reconcile ourselves to the fact that we may well die younger than we thought, that our children may die younger than we thought, that we may not be able to achieve what we hoped, that actually we are not in control, So unless we sit with that, and find a way of being okay with that, then I think a lot of subconscious things will be going on, which will lead us into anger, blame, retribution, and and kind of aggressive ways of being which will make matters worse. And climate change, seen as a really bad thing, challenges those deep stories in us, and so I'm inviting people to recognize that, and process it, and that is... It's a spiritual uh, invitation as well for some people.
0: So, looking forward, what do you think we can tell our children? Or how, how do you think we can adapt the way that we are as families to try to give our children the greatest resilience?
5: I think that... From my experience we're talking from 13 to 17 year olds about the possibility or likelihood of collapse so what in talking with them what I realize is the first thing is to stop forcing them to be working so hard at things they won't need to, to, to do or know and then within that new space we'll talk with them about what they want to learn and some of them might be interested in gardening some might be interested in being electricians some might be interested in it was all kinds of stuff. but um, So I think, and this is my... I, I was very pleased when the, teaching, the global federation of teaching trade unions called Education International came out in support of the children's strikes but said that children need to be helped, not hindered in preparing for what's ahead, and the curriculum needs to change as a, as to help them with that. So what do we say to children? It depends on how old they are. Um, but I think anyone over... Well, in my experience, I've I've talked to 13-year-olds who really take this on board quite quickly and say, yeah, okay, Um, so I'm not so interested in those things and I'm now more interested in um, going to the allotment with granddad.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Actually, I remember one of the hardest things was to have a... When I got on board with this, was to have a conversation with my daughter because Mm. I felt that I had conned her, that her whole Mm. upbringing and the values that I tried to uh, lead her towards uh, were a fantasy, uh, and then that I had been kind of complicit in uh, uh, setting her up for one kind of life Mm. and leading her into a great disappointment.
5: (laughs) Uh, I mean, I'm not a parent, and parents need to talk to each other about this. From what I've heard, uh, a friend and colleague of mine with a 6 year old when when her 6 year old daughter says things like oh mummy i want to have a child because i love i love being with you i love the mother child thing that we have and uh, my friend tells her 6 year old well, what you love about it is love and connection and because she doesn't want to uphold or, or support or encourage the story of her daughter expecting to be a mum one day
0: mm-hmm. Is there anything else that we should
5: be teaching kids? It's a new field for me, this one, of, of, of education, and school education. Uh, my partner works in that field. And I remember when we first had a chat six years ago, and she was telling me about how they promote uh, global citizenship in schools, and things like fair trade bananas. And I wasn't sure about how bad the climate situation was back then. But I did wonder whether when they grow up, these children that she was helping teachers teach, and maybe you'd want them to have learned greater skills of forgiveness, so that when there aren't even bananas to be had, um, they don't hate us and, and they can forgive us. Well, they Certainly don't want to kill us for how bad we've been in screwing up the planet. So, I mean, I, I say that, I said that back then in a bit of jest, but, but actually I think we do really need to look at how we can all learn how to get along better. And part of that will be not blaming and forgiving. Anger is an emotion which arises and is part of life, but but then I'm interested in where that goes, and I think if it goes into just blame and retribution, resentment, uh, it's not empowering yourself, uh, and it can be a distraction from actually getting on with fixing the problem or reducing harm.
0: What is it about human beings that has led us in reasonably recent times to get to a point where we are risking the
5: destruction of the whole planet? Well, you ask simple questions on your podcast, <laughs> don't you, Jessica?
0: What is the meaning of life, Jim? Oh, wow.
5: <laughs> okay. Um, it's a good question because also in our responses to this tragedy and this coming calamity, we don't want to sort of make the same mistakes again and make things worse. So for me, the origin of our crisis is very, very deep in the human psyche and in human culture. It starts with our sense of separation between humans and nature, uh, that we felt that we had dominion over nature, uh, that it wasn't sacred, and that somehow we could do whatever we wanted to it. Uh, it would somehow serve us, uh, and that wouldn't backfire. I mean, that was always a delusion. Nature is us, we are nature. I think this, this if, if, if you think that you need to always progress and move forward, Uh, and then you end up with having technology that can sort of trash nature. Those two things together mean that we're on this headlong rush Mm. into, like, chewing up the the planet Mm. in in the name of getting somewhere. Mm. Um, When we know in the end we all die, and anything we could contribute to will pass away at some point in future. So the the collapse that will come in most societies, I think probably within ten years, will... Shake people to the core but it will invite people to drop all these stories of being separate and independently capable and we'll come together and we'll play together and we'll we'll share food and games and all sorts
0: do you i'm taking a bit of a punt here um i remember watching the crisis in greece uh when they were having an argument with the rest of europe and you know uh, uh, and were genuinely having uh, Troubles and people were having to feed each other, but it did seem like we were watching a community that was helping each other out. But I don't know that much about it.
5: I see. <laughs> Do
0: you think it's a model?
5: Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, suddenly uh, wages and pensions were cut by almost—I think it was about half. Suddenly, can you imagine? Here in the UK, all pensions and and public sector salaries were just halved. So, yeah, people couldn't afford to eat, and they had to start working together. Um, I'm talking as if I know about it, because I was fascinated, too. So I went to live in Athens for um, four months to, to learn about uh, how, how things were working there. And community assemblies were very big. Uh, people come together, and when I, got, I, I joined in. So there was this, um, yeah, people were, I think once a week, I got a delivery of uh, vegetables that were grown in... People's back gardens, and then they would all bring them to the community assembly, and, and you know, I paid for it because I didn't have a back garden, I didn't live there. But um, but yeah, that, that and that that exchange system was enabled by um, uh, free open source software that my friend uh, Matthew makes for about 200 communities around the world. So then it could all be uh, so it's, it's it's kind of in the gift, but it, but it, but you also have an accounting system as well.
0: Yeah. Mm.
5: Your question was: Is that the model for Britain?
0: <laughs> well, when social breakdown comes, mm. uh, maybe I, I guess it depends. Well, uh, how do you see this social breakdown that's coming?
5: Well, it will be both good and bad, like everything. So, um, the sooner people knock on their neighbours' doors and say. Uh, mm. How about we all watch the same programs and, and share heating how about we cook together uh, how about we talk about I've got a big back garden but I'm too old to uh, manage a vegetable patch you know, it's, it's, it's super simple stuff this isn't this isn't like fancy technology that's needed there's just that shift in people starting to talk to each other about how to work together uh, for the basics of warmth, food, and uh, friendship.
2: Extinction Rebellion. It's so fascinating listening to, to Jem Um and, you know, also the fact that he had to take time out to really digest and really come to terms. This, this sort of theme of acceptance, I think, really runs through Extinction Rebellion as well in that, you know, we're trying so hard to to stop catastrophe but at the same time we're also aware that we may be too late and 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 that it's a
0: possibility
2: that's yeah and and how do we deal with that and which is why the regenerative culture within extinction rebellion is also Mm. so important because Mm. we need to sort of deal with that there's no quick way to acceptance though
0: is there it seems like people have to go through a process and it's partly You resist the truth and you feel angry and and, uh, then you accept it a little bit more uh, and you maybe have to grieve for all the lost possibilities and the lost hopes and potentials that that could mean. As you say, one of the problems is we don't actually know, but the fact that it is a possibility is... is quite something to take on board.
2: Yeah, and I, I'm really glad that you spoke to him about, you know, the, your thoughts about, you know, especially your daughter and and grandchildren or, or or lack thereof. Because I'm obviously my friends around me are all having children now, and and uh, you know, I I I couldn't do it now, not necessarily because I think more children or more people and more negative impact on the planet. But purely because, you know, what sort of future are you giving these children now? You know, yes. children that are born now in 10 years time is sort of coming towards the end of the IPCC predictions and everything. Yes. And like, what kind of planet will we be on? Yes. And and that grief and that fear is, is is, I mean, it's, sometimes it's a bit um, debilitating almost, yes. isn't it? But
0: I, but within the interview, I think it's very interesting how Jam talks about children themselves being much more resilient. Where yeah. they'll be, they'll say, "Oh, well, maybe I can't be a robotics expert, so maybe I'll be a gardener." Yeah, uh, that's so you true. Know, because yeah. their framing is completely different to ours. Yeah, uh, but nevertheless, they will be adults at some point, and they will yeah. understand what's been lost
2: yeah and what do we tell them when they ask us at least we can say we tried to do something <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes and and um to go back
0: to christiana at the beginning of the episode who is so positive about trying to make mm. changes yeah take place you know if we do push forward with a lot of positive energy we don't know where we'll end up and it, it, it will certainly be a lot a, a much better place than if we hadn't made that effort.
2: Yes, and that's exactly what Extinction Rebellion is all about, is that, you know, we're aware how bad the situation is, but we still want to be trying to to avoid total catastrophe. And, um, and that's why more of us need to be on the street. You know, like Christiana said, why not 10 million? You know, I yes. think we can do it and we yes. need to do it. And everyone needs to make this their priority. So... Uh... Yeah, let's do it!